As a pediatrician, Abby Mason-Brink is not at all shy about bodies. It's like so a part of the regular workflow is to like look at body parts and talk about peeing and pooping. And so it's like super fine. Abby works at a hospital in Kansas City, Missouri, just a few miles from where she grew up. Her job is to deal with sickness, so she's got pretty tough skin. But it can feel different when it comes to family. Like last year, when Abby's mom told her about a recent trip to the doctor. She told me that she had vaginal bleeding. Then she'd seen her doctor for it and that they'd ordered an MRI. In that moment, Abby froze. She knew that kind of symptom at her mom's age usually meant one thing. I was like, you're a postmenopausal woman with vaginal bleeding. Did they say anything about it possibly being, like, cancer? My mom was like, no. And I was like, oh, my God. I'm Rima Khres, and welcome to This is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. This week, we've got a story about a daughter who goes to unexpected lengths to navigate her healthcare system to help her mom. One of the producers here at Marketplace, Stephanie Hughes, has been talking with Abby and her mom for the last couple months. I'm going to have Stephanie take it from here. So it turned out Abby was right. A few weeks after their talk over coffee, her mom learned she had stage 4 cancer. Because it's so far along, treatment becomes about prolonging life, not getting rid of the disease. And to make things more complicated, the cancer, called extramammary Paget's disease, is super rare. Yeah, it's one in a gazillion. That's Judy, Abby's mom. People try to joke and say, oh, you're so unique. Then I want to say, you know what, I don't want it. Give me something quite common that could have been cured and been over with already. Despite the diagnosis, Abby says her mom works hard to keep her spirits up. She's perkier than I am, like, all most of the time. So mm-hmm. I think that she, like, figures out this, like, pretty hopeful, positive optimistic place in her mind and then decides that that's going to be her truth. Judy's 73 and a bit of a classic Midwestern mom. She's a retired guidance counselor, chats with strangers around town, has long conversations in the grocery store checkout line. But when it comes to personal issues, Abby says her mom typically stays quiet. When she first noticed a problem with the skin around her vulva, she didn't want to talk about it. We obviously are in the Midwest and we don't talk about private areas, but it was missed. It wasn't full, It wasn't diagnosed um, early. Do you think the area of the body where this is happening affected how your mom approached everything? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, if it was on her forehead, I think it would have come up earlier. <laughs> so the thing is, her mom's cancer is so rare, there isn't one single agreed-upon treatment. And when a lot of patients find themselves in this position, they're confronted with a maze of options. How does that change your approach as opposed to if your mom had lung cancer or, you know, breast cancer, about which more is known? You know, when when you have a common type of cancer, typically the doctors are like, here's what we do. You know, I do this every day, 20 times a day. And so then you get this sense of, like, relief and trust that, okay, we'll make— you know, we'll go with what you're telling us. But with our situation, the burden of of making the right or wrong decision is more, I think, on the family than on the doctors because 
they're essentially giving you their best information, but it's weak. In the weeks following the diagnosis, Abby and her siblings were by her mom's side, going to doctor's visits with her, getting second and third and fourth opinions. Abby lives just a few miles from her parents, back in her hometown of Kansas City. After more than a decade away, it's something she feels mixed about. What do you love about it? I don't know if I love it. (laughs) (laughs) But the timing has been really lucky. Judy says she's glad not to be making these decisions by herself. And there were a lot of decisions. Would surgery help? Chemotherapy? Clinical trials? You know, my husband and I, we were both just in such an overwhelmed, um, emotional, confused, sad place. You can't think straight. You can't think rationally because you're emotional. It was so helpful to have still family members who were emotionally distraught also, but a touch removed, a touch removed to be able to say, okay, we need to do this, we need to do that. They decided to start chemotherapy. Judy would go to a clinic each week for a four- or five-hour session. At first, the drugs appeared to work. Doctors used words like impressive response to the chemo. After six months, it seemed like the cancer was gone. Judy took a break from chemotherapy for a while. But then, this past spring, they learned that the cancer had spread. Which was really, really disappointing to hear because I felt good and... Um, just frustrated that that had happened. So then at that point, their doctor suggested a new drug called Neuralynx. It's designed to fight breast cancer, but targets the same genetic mutation that Judy's cancer has. She would take a few pills every day, no more hours spent at the clinic getting chemo. For Judy, Neuralynx would have a 30% chance of working, so like one in three people. But the oncologist thought it was their best shot. It's a little bit hard to apply a statistic and then look at my mom and be like, okay, which one of the three people are you going to be? Judy and her family decided to go for it. But there was one problem. Neuralinks is super expensive. The oncologist wanted Judy to take it for a year, which would cost about $180,000. It was too much. And insurance companies? They'll usually cover the cost of Neuralinks to treat breast cancer, but not extramammary Paget's disease, the cancer Judy has. Abby was furious. So one afternoon, on her drive home from work, she called up her mom's insurance company. She wanted to see if they could do something, maybe cover the drug for a month. And so I am on the phone with this lady, and, you know, she's not a bad person, but she's representing, like, in my life, you know, one of the evils and one of the institutions that's potentially, like, making my mom's life shorter. Abby decided to do a little fact-finding, basically say, hey, let's say I have this rare cancer, and I know there's a specific drug that could prolong my life, but insurance won't cover it. And I was like, what am I supposed to do? And that was, I think, when she was like, well, you know, can you ask your doctor to change your diagnosis? Abby felt the insurance company was implying that in order to get this medication, which has been approved for breast cancer, a doctor would have to fudge the diagnosis, say it's breast cancer and not extramammary Paget's disease. And I laughed, and I was like, what are you talking about? It felt ridiculous that the only workaround was to change the diagnosis. And she was like, "I I don't know what to tell you. She hung up super frustrated. 
Did you know that she was calling the insurer on your behalf? No, mm-hmm. I don't think I did. Um, mm-hmm. How did you feel about that when you learned about it? Um, good. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd let you do it, Stephanie, too, if you wanted to. <laughs> if you've got the words, I tell you, and you've got the, the tone of voice or the assertiveness or whatever's needed, I'd say, hey, I'd, I'd pay you a million bucks. So the insurance company wasn't going to help. Meanwhile, there was option B, reaching out to the company that makes the drug. Judy hoped they might give it to her for free. The company has a program that provides the drug to patients who can't afford it. So they wrote to them and soon after got a letter back. It was a rejection. So here the the letter on August 6th says, based on the information provided, you are not eligible for the program for the following reason, income. And that's all it says. They didn't know exactly what that meant, but they figured that Judy and her husband, who are solidly middle class, had too much money to qualify for the program. Judy remembers that moment, standing at her kitchen counter. It had been months since the cancer came back. They had exhausted all these options, and now this letter just felt like another dead end. You just laugh. You just laugh and say, right, yeah, you just, it just didn't seem real. Paying out of pocket for Neuralinks would cost more than $14,000 per month. Judy and her husband considered dipping into their retirement savings to pay for a few months of treatment, but that would have put them in a tough spot financially. We were all like, oh my gosh, what do we do? Like, there's nothing else we can do. So those days where you're just delayed are anxiety-provoking because um, you know that the cancer is growing and spreading. Then, Judy's doctor had one last idea. He wrote what's called a compassion letter to the pharmaceutical company. This letter explained exactly why Judy needed the drug and why they should provide it for free. At that point, the family just had to wait and hope for a yes. I was at the pool. It was over the summer. And I received this text, and it said, like, the drug company is going to give us the drug. The doctor's letter had worked. And I called her, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is all over. Like, this whole struggle and all this anxiety and all this, like, back and forth. That's done now? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Excellent. A couple of days later, we were sitting outside, I think, having lunch, maybe. And then the FedEx truck drove up the driveway, and I kind of saw it and ran out, and there he was. The FedEx man. Yeah, the FedEx driver, Uh yeah, and I... I didn't hug him. I could have hugged him, and I just said, you know, you're, you're saving my life. And he just didn't know what to say. Coming up after the break, Judy and her family face another challenge. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. 
Every morning, Judy took her new medicine, a few pills chased with a glass of pomegranate juice. Unlike chemo, it wasn't this painful reminder of her sickness. She traveled a bit with her husband, spent time with her kids. She felt pretty good. Then, after 10 weeks, she had her first scan to see if the cancer had diminished. Abby was also at the appointment. Her doctor came in shortly after I got there, and um, he walks in the room, and he goes, well, it didn't work. And then he pulls out the report, and he reads it aloud, and it says, you know, multiple widespread metastatic lesions throughout the liver. And then my mom starts fainting because we didn't know, like, the extent of how much of her liver was involved. I, I almost felt like my body had um, had tricked me. It it should have been giving me more clues that things were not right. After all this lobbying and fighting for the medicine and the excitement that it might work, it felt like a huge letdown. We'd had the, just, like, so many great scans that you start kind of believing in miracles, and you're like, well... This is a rare cancer nobody knows, and maybe we don't fit the box of how things go. I just was so overwhelmed. I I felt like I'd been hit by a truck. So now, Judy's going to try yet another drug, Cadsyla. It's also technically for breast cancer, and the side effects are supposedly not too bad. Though, this one is at least covered by her insurance, so Judy doesn't have to jump through all those hoops again. But she says it's hard to know how to manage her feelings. So how do you how do you merge being optimistic and then add realism in there and say, now, now, you know, don't get carried away because uh, it could not be as um, hopeful as you want it to be. Because Judy's cancer is so rare, there's not a lot of proof that any treatment will work better than the next. There's no single pamphlet they can read that'll give them all the answers. You don't want to be responsible for making the wrong decision. I feel like a lot of the choices that we've made about using our time and money to, like, get more information has been about just trying to get a clear understanding of, like, tell us what the best decision is and then we'll make that decision. By focusing on getting Judy the treatment she needs, Abby and her family are able to have some small control over a situation that would otherwise feel completely overwhelming. And it's ongoing. With every new treatment option, they worry they'll be denied coverage again. Still, Judy's grateful to have her daughter and her family by her side. They're not the patient. They can't take the pills. They're not going through the scans. But they feel like they're supporting that person, me. It's quite wonderful and huge. So, yeah, letting, letting people give love um, just to have that opportunity to, to give. And there's something to be said for having a conquerable enemy. They may not be able to cure Judy's cancer, but maybe, with Abby's help, they can conquer the bureaucracy. Stephanie Hughes is a producer here at Marketplace. So as life expectancy grows, more and more young people like Abby are going to take on this role, having to make life or death decisions for their parents, juggling costs and care options and dealing with a super complicated healthcare system. 
that only makes those decisions even messier. But for anyone navigating healthcare, I learned recently that there are professional patient advocates. Like, that is a thing where it's someone's job to help patients deal with at least the money side of things. So I recently called one of them up, you know, just to get a few tips. What I see the most is patients, they don't know what to do. They literally put all of their bills into a drawer or into a sack. They close the drawer and they don't deal with it. That's Gerilyn Arneson. She does patient advocacy pro bono. Basically, she helps people avoid unnecessary costs and incorrect medical bills. She even had to advocate for herself recently when she went in for surgery and three months later got a surprise bill for nearly $8,000. I actually called my insurance company and they said, no, that's a billing and coding error on their part and you don't owe that. It was a small clerical error, but one that took months of phone calls to get the hospital to correct. Even for someone who does this professionally, it was not easy. So if you find yourself in a similar position but doing it alone, Gerilyn has a few pieces of advice. First, if you're hit with a large or unexpected medical bill, don't just panic. That's the trap that a lot of people fall into, is they don't know any better and and they just pay it. Instead, ask for a closer look. They need to contact the hospital and they need to get an itemized statement. An itemized statement is going to show every single thing a hospital is charging you for. And Gerilyn says that bill, it's often wrong. The error rate for billing and coding errors in hospitals is around 80%. What? No. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> that's, so that's how frequent it is. That 80% number is according to advocacy groups. A study from the University of Minnesota says the error rate is closer to 40%. But point is, hospitals mess up, and you've got to fact check. Gerilyn says the errors may just be the result of someone accidentally scanning a barcode twice, or a hospital billing you as uninsured if they don't have your most recent insurance info. And even if everything is coded correctly, she says you can still argue that the charge is unfair. Hospitals can set their own prices, so a procedure can cost twice as much at one hospital versus another. And medicine costs can get bumped up, too. The hospitals are able to inflate their prices, sometimes upwards of 700 percent from the actual cost. That's wild. Gerilyn says you can use a resource like the Healthcare Blue Book to find out the fair market price for procedures. You can look up what an average price is for a certain, you know, um, procedure or, yeah, or supply or, or something like that. And so you can use that as leverage. Basically, you can use that to negotiate the price of treatment before you get the care. But if you've already been hit with the bill and still want to negotiate or correct an error, Gerilyn says, Keep calling the billing department and ask for the supervisor and ask for their supervisor. If that doesn't work, go in person. Basically, be a pain in the ass. You're going to be met with resistance. The hospital is most likely going to get defensive. And so, you know, don't stop when someone tells you that you you don't need to see that or you're not going to understand it. 
She says insurers negotiate with hospitals for lower prices, so there's no reason patients can't do that, too. Beyond that, there are a few other things you can try. If you're able to pay a lump sum of cash up front, some hospitals and doctor offices will offer a discount. Also, drug companies give away millions of dollars worth of drugs each year. So it doesn't hurt to ask. I approach the manufacturers, the drug manufacturers, and I'll either ask for free drug or I'll ask for assistance with their copay. And she says nonprofit hospitals often provide financial assistance for people based on income and have charities that can help cover costs. She just helped one woman get rid of a $63,000 bill by tapping into those programs. The problem is not many people know they exist. And that's one of the reasons why there's so much inequity when it comes to health care. People get slapped with huge bills and don't even know it's possible to push back or get financial assistance or negotiate a payment plan. And because of these crazy costs, Gerilyn says she sees a lot of patients who avoid getting the care they need. Everybody should have access to treatments, whether, you know, they make you know, $10,000 a year, they make $100,000 a year, they should all have access to those treatments. So that was a lot of info. I just threw your way, but we've also got it up on our website at marketplace.org. Check it out. This is actually our last full episode of 2019. We'll have a little treat for you all in December, but we're working on some bigger episodes for next year. Thanks to you all for listening. We're super grateful. If there's a certain topic you really want us to dig into next year, or if you just want to share your story, let me know. I'm at Rima Grace on Twitter, and you can always shoot us a note at uncomfortable at marketplace.org. Also, if you want to stay posted on our whereabouts, you can sign up for our upcoming newsletter. The link for that is in the show notes for this episode. And very, very last thing, if you've liked this podcast, please share it with your friends, leave a review, rate us. That stuff really does help us out. All right, that is all. This episode of This is Uncomfortable was produced by me, Rima Hreis, Haley Hirschman, Peter Balanon-Rosen, and Maria Karimji, and it was reported in part by Stephanie Hughes. Megan Dietry is our senior producer. Drew Jostad is our audio engineer. Editing by Sarah Kramer with help this week from Eliza Mills. Tony Wagner is our digital producer. Muna Danish is our intern. Sitara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand. And Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager of Marketplace. And our theme music is by Wonderly. All right, catch y'all later.